If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, if you would, please. Acts is the first book of the Bible after the New Testament, after Mark, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, after the four Gospels, I mean. Technically, Acts is the first book of the New Testament because the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is technically still the Old Testament, if you didn't know that. So Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 32 is our text this morning. The word of the Lord. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its authority. We thank you for its instruction. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to bless our time together this morning, that you would be so honored with the worship that is offered to you this day. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to set our full attention upon all that you have prepared for us this morning. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be so pleased with thy servant's work to bless it for your honor and glory and for the church's good. And as always, we pray that if there be anyone here this morning who has not yet begun to believe in you, Lord, they have not yet embraced you as their one and only Lord of their life 
and Savior from sin, we pray. We pray that you would look to the Father, interceding on their behalf, asking the Father to draw them unto himself through saving faith in you, washing them, cleansing them, forgiving them of all their sin, enabling them, making them a son or daughter in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Beloved, last week we continued our mini-series on the three ordained, God-ordained institutions. Those three institutions being the church government, the family government, and the civil government. As we've noted, these three are the only institutions ordained by the Lord God Almighty. All other institutions have their origin in man. And again, it's worth noting, of all people on the face of this planet, God's people, the members of the body of Christ, the church ought to be able to enumerate these three institutions that God has so graciously ordained and brought into existence with great ease. Knowing the names of these three divinely institutions, uh, divinely ordained institutions, is important because how can we as God's people properly, forthrightly uphold and defend them if we do not know what they are. We must never forget, beloved, that the enemy is diligently working toward their fall and destruction. The enemy and his cohorts are working nonstop, and his cohorts are working nonstop, 24-7, strategizing how to bring about their utter destruction. Ever since the fall of man, there have been those working on behalf of Satan, seeking to do away with God's good and perfect and acceptable will. And again, the church government is God's good and perfect and acceptable will. The family government, the nuclear family, father, mother, son, daughter, is God's good and perfect and acceptable will. The civil government is God's good and perfect and acceptable will. These three alone God has brought into existence, he has ordained and brought into existence because they are his good and perfect and acceptable will. And it is because it is his good and perfect and acceptable will, these three, so many today, are seeking their downfall. If we're going to as we noted already, possess a biblical worldview. Well, what is a biblical worldview? A biblical worldview is viewing the world through the lens of Holy Scripture, looking at the world based upon what the Scripture says about the world. If we're going to possess a biblical worldview, when we are viewing the world through the lens of Holy Scripture, as we noted already before, we will eventually arrive to the understanding that those three God-ordained institutions are truly indeed God-ordained. The attempt to see these three destroyed are not new, as we already noted. Since the fall, there have been those working toward perverting and ultimately destroying the church, the family, and the governments. 
we started our consideration of this mini-series with a biblical teaching on marriage and divorce. Well, what does the Bible say about marriage and divorce? We consider the Holy Scripture's teaching on marriage and divorce because without marriage, the nuclear family simply would not exist. The family government would not be in existence. The passage of the two passages of Holy Scripture that we considered uh, on the, on, for our biblical understanding of marriage and divorce are Matthew 19, 1 through 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As previously noted, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they based their teaching on marriage and divorce based on Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, when they had, should have based their teaching on Genesis 1 through 2. The Pharisees, they allowed a man for reasons sufficient to himself to hand his wife or a certificate of divorce. Whatever the man decided was cause or justification to hand his wife a certificate of marriage, a certificate of divorce, they allowed him to do that. Today we call that no-fault divorce. Divorce for any given reason sufficient to the husband. Divorce for a variety of reasons. Reasons deemed sufficient for the husband was never intended by God when he instituted marriage with our first parents. And so the Pharisees tested Jesus to determine whether he would agree with their distorted view of marriage and divorce. And as we noted before, as we review what we've, uh, as we go through this brief review, as we noted before, Jesus failed their test, but he passed God's with flying colors. So what do we learn from Jesus in Matthew 19, 1 through 2, in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about marriage and divorce. We learned that marriage is, is an institution ordained by God, and for that reason, its definition has already been given by God himself. So what is marriage? Marriage is one biological man and one biological woman who have joined hands in holy matrimony. That is what marriage is. Marriage is one biological man and one biological woman who have joined hands in holy matrimony for life. For life. We also learned that the only justifications for divorce are sexual immorality, which include pornography, as Jesus highlights in Matthew chapter 19, and abandonment, which the Apostle Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so brothers and sisters, those who are very aggressively seeking to dismantle and forever destroy the nuclear family, father, husband, wife, mother, and children, those who are seeking, there are those who are aggressively seeking to dismantle and destroy the nuclear family. And as we've noted before, as Christians, as Christians, we error. We give the enemy fodder when we, when we refer to the nuclear family as traditional. There's nothing traditional about the nuclear family. There's nothing traditional about marriage. It's not traditional. It's not some passing 
thing that it's man-made. It's not, no. There's an all-out war on the family government. There's an all-out war on the nuclear family. We see this unfolding with the efforts to redefine marriage and basic biology, telling boys they can be girls and girls they can be boys. The family government, beloved, has been ordained by God, and for that reason, the body of Christ, the church, the has the responsibility to vigorously defend marriage. To vigorously defend marriage by defending the institution of marriage, we are defending the nuclear family, or we could say the family government. If that means parents going to, to, to school council meetings, if that means parents going to city council meetings and addressing their city council on these issues, then that's what that means. That's what must be done. The Apostle Paul states in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he states, listen carefully, he states that the church, the church, the body of Christ, is the pillar and ground for the truth. The church, not the government, not the world, not the unbelieving world, not our school system. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so because of that, we, the church, we are called to uphold the truth. And that means we, we are to be about the Father's business, speaking the truth about the church government, about the family government, and about civil government. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, a foundational passage for one gaining a biblical understanding of the civil government. What do we learn about the civil government from Paul's teaching in Romans 13, 1 through 7? We learn that governing authorities are established by God, and therefore they are, we are to be subject to them. We are to honor them. We are to obey them. That is, we are to render obedience to our governing authorities. To do otherwise, Paul says, is to resist God and to bring condemnation upon oneself. We also learn that the role of civil government is to protect those who do good and punish those who do evil. That is all that the civil government, that's all the government is supposed to do, protect those who do good, and punish those who do evil. That's the role. Anything outside of those two things, anything outside of that role, the government is, is veering off into areas that should, does not belong. Protect those who do good and punish those who do evil. That's it. We learn that we are to pay taxes to our government so that they can be equipped to do what God has called them to do. 
so that they could have the means to protect those who do good and to punish those who do evil. And we also learned during our time together last week that there are those occasions when civil disobedience is inappropriate. There are those occasions when civil disobedience is appropriate. Now, one might be saying, Pastor Wayne, that sounds pretty radical. I mean, what do you mean civil disobedience? Where do we find civil disobedience in Scripture, Pastor? Where do we find that? Beloved, in the book of Acts, we find the Lord's disciples, the early church, confronted with their governing authorities not to preach the gospel. The disciples said that they would rather obey God than man. Preaching the gospel was civil disobedience. And they were jailed for it. They were beaten for it. Some of them lost their life for it. But nevertheless, it is better to obey God than man. While the civil government is ordained by God, we need to understand that there have always been those who enter positions of governing authority for the purposes that are contrary to God's purpose for civil government. We see that in abundance today. There always have been those, and so long as we are waiting for Christ's return, there will be men and women in positions of governing authority who do not desire to see God's good and perfect and acceptable will accomplished through the civil government. And we see this throughout sacred scripture. And so for those who were not with us last week, listen carefully as I read the two key passages that I just made reference to from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, uh, we read, beginning in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man whom had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or more, to, 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 to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had performed. 
And then we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 26 to 32, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they had feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. This is the disciples governing in authority before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in, his na- in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Civil government is not supposed to encourage disobedience to God. Our local authorities, our state authorities, our federal authorities is not supposed to encourage disobedience to the Lord God Almighty. That's not their calling. Their calling is, plain and simple, protect those who do good and punish those who do evil. That's it. Full stop. God calls us to obey the civil government so long as it is fulfilling its God given responsibility. That's it. Again, as we appropriately noted last week, when the civil government takes upon itself anything more than its two God-given responsibilities, it is veering or moving into areas that God never intended it to move in. And again, as we noted before, the only reason, brothers and sisters, let's make this clear, The only reasons that we should ever find ourselves at odds with the government. The only reason is our obedience to the word of God. That is the only reason, is our obedience to the word of God. Walking faithfully with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the only reason why we should ever find ourselves at odds with the government, with our civil government. It is not called to legislate morality. It is not called to redefine marriage. It is not called to redefine human biology. The civil government is not called by God to go to war with the nuclear family. It is not called to micromanage people's lives. It is not called the Lord over the church. In fact, one of the things that one of the things that was tremendously highlighted, beloved, during the pandemic, during the COVID pandemic, a lot of people did did, did not have a proper understanding of the role of government and church. They really believed, they really thought that the government or the state government has authority over the local church, and it doesn't. 
the government doesn't have any authority at all over the body of Christ. It can suggest, as it did, certain things, but it cannot order, it cannot instruct, it cannot, it doesn't have any authority over the local church. We need to understand that. And the Lord God Almighty set it up that way. The civil government is not called to persecute Christians and is not called to silence the church. It is not called by God to prevent the church from preaching the gospel and teaching the whole counsel of God. Once again, the only God-given authority the civil government has is protecting those who do good and punishing those who do evil. So while we are called by the Lord God Almighty to, sub to submit ourselves to the civil government, it is always better to obey God rather than men who do not want to see God's people doing his good and perfect and acceptable will. The civil government is not called by God to oversee or rule over the family government nor the church government. And this brings us to our passage of Holy Scripture here in Acts chapter 20, verse 25 through 32. Beloved, there are those today who are not only looking to, to dismantle, to, to, to redefine to destroy the family government and the civil government, but there are those who are likewise attempting to redefine or destroy or dismantle the church government as God intended it to be. Let us look to our passage here in Acts 20, verse 25 through 32, and we'll read it together, and then we'll look to the Lord once again in prayer. Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 32. Two, the word of the Lord. And indeed, now I know you all, and now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us. This, we know that you are with us this morning. Father, we pray that your good and perfect and acceptable will would be accomplished. We pray that the worship offered to you this day would be pleasing to you. 
And we pray that there be anyone here or listening to this message who has not yet begun to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not yet placed their faith, trust in the redemptive work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be so merciful in granting them saving faith, enabling them to embrace Jesus Christ as their one and only Lord and Savior, in whose name we live and move and have our being. Again, and indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Here we find the Apostle Paul having his last face-to-face with the Ephesian elders. This will be the last time that, he, that they will see each other face-to-face. And so we can imagine Paul looking each of them in the eye and saying, Indeed, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, you will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So what do we learn about Paul in these first few verses of our passage? We learned that he is able to depart from them for the last time with a clear conscience. With a clear conscience. He is able to depart from them, bid them Farewell for the last time with a clear conscience. Paul has a clear conscience knowing that he did not hold back preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God to them. He declared the gospel to anyone who gave him an audience. He preached the kingdom of God and declared the whole counsel of God to anyone who would listen to him. And you know how sometimes... Beloved, I, I speak from personal experience how our, our conscience bothers us because we passed up an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. We passed up an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus Christ. Paul didn't have that problem. Here in this passage, we see he didn't have that problem. 
His conscience was not condemning him. His conscience was free and clear of any condemnation because he obediently preached Jesus Christ and him crucified to anyone who would listen to him. Anyone who gave him an ear. He has a clear conscience because he did not hold back the whole counsel of God. And for that reason, he understood that he could depart from the Ephesian elders with a clear conscience, knowing that he is innocent of the blood of all men. That he is innocent of the blood of all men. That he isn't guilty of holding back the gospel from anyone. If anyone in whom he spoke to rejected the gospel, the responsibility now lies upon their souls, not his. He declared the gospel. He taught the whole counsel of God to them. Read with me, if you would, beginning with verse 25. Here Paul writes, where he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the, disciple, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. The Ephesian elders would no longer have Paul to assist them with shepherding the flock which the Holy Spirit entrusted to their care. Paul was key to the Ephesian elders. He was, he was, he was discipling them, leading and guiding them, encouraging them, showing them the way on how to shepherd the flock of God. Paul understood by way of experience that once the Ephesian elders were on, were, were on their own, once they, were no longer, once they no longer had him to personally lead and guide them in their shepherding responsibilities, that enemies of the gospel would attempt to quietly infiltrate the church. They would attempt to quietly infiltrate the body of Christ. Again, what does Paul say, beginning in verse 29? He says, for I know this. Paul is speaking with absolute certainty. I know this. This is going to happen. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul is speaking from personal experience. Beloved, the pastoral ministry is not to be taken lightly. It is to be taken very seriously. 
The elders, which make up the church government, are to be on guard for both themselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit has entrusted to their care. So what do we learn when we observe what do we learn when we observe wolves in the wilderness? Actual wolves. What do we learn when we observe wolves? We learn that they are very smart. We learn that they are very sharp. We learn that they have nearly perfected their art of seek and destroy of their enemy. The savage wolves Paul is is referring to here in this passage, they're very sharp, they're very smart, and they've nearly protected the art of seek, infiltrate, and destroy. They are very well versed in infiltrating the local church. They are very good at with, 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 with strategically moving among the flock, eventually finding their way into positions of authority within the church government. Again, the church government is called to protect the flock of God by being on guard, watching out for savage wolves. The God-given role of the church government, the role of the elders, the pastor's role, is is to shepherd and protect the flock of God from savage wolves. John Calvin, speaking on the role of the pastor, once wrote this. The pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep, and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. Again, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away the wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. And so, beloved, not only is it the pastor's responsibility to instruct and build up and encourage the body of Christ, to encourage the flock, to instruct and build up and encourage the flock through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, but it is also the pastor's responsibility to to warn, to warn the church about thieves and wolves. It is the pastor's responsibility to to push out the thieves and wolves out of the church. What else do we see about the church government here in Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders? Again, verses 29 through 31. What other observation can we make here? For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, 
speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Beloved, the church government is to be made up of men. It is to be made up of men. Again, notice what he says. He says, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, and this is important, among you. Among you. Not sparing the flock, and also from among yourselves. He says what? From among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, beloved, women have always played a very important role in the kingdom of God. Always. Undeniably. Always. Just one obvious example, without our beloved sisters in Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God would have never came to pass. Another example, the Samaritan woman's witness to her own people resulted in many Samaritans believing in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. I mean, we can go on and on highlighting the important roles women have played and even today continue to play in the advancement of the kingdom of God within the church, the body of Christ. So when we acknowledge that the church government is made up of men, that is not implying that women do not play an important role in God's kingdom. That's not implying that at all. It's simply highlighting the fact that when God ordained the church government, he did so with the intention of it being made up of men, men whom he has called, qualified, and equipped for the work of ministry. That's all that it's saying. We each have our own God-given roles. And today we are seeing God's design for the church government being undermined in some circles. We see the church government being undermined by, by men whom God has clearly not called to the pastoral ministry. Some clear examples of this are, are, are the un, are the, is the unsound doctrine that is being taught from the pulpit, if there is even a pulpit present. Worship services conducted as if they are a concert event. Example. A local church is known for handing out earplugs to the congregants as they walk in, as they file into the sanctuary. Earplugs. Why do they hand out earplugs? Because the music is so loud. The guitars and the drums and the, every, it's so loud. We're not against guitars. We're not against drums. We're not against, ba- we're not against instruments. But it's so loud that earplugs are given. The authority of sacred scripture is set aside for pragmatism. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? What I mean by that is rather 
rather, rather, than, rather than governing the church and seeking to build the ministry up based upon the prescription that God has given to us in the word of God, the word of God is set aside and what is embraced to build up a church, to build a ministry is whatever works, whatever draws them in. That's pragmatism. Whatever works. Beloved, God is to be worshipped in an accordance with how he has directed his people to worship him. He is to be worshipped in an accordance with the direction that he has given his people to worship him. Yes, God has said, I will be worshipped in this manner. This is the way you are to worship me. And we know, we know how things went for Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, when they worshipped him, when they offered worship that was unprescribed worship. What happened? In verses 1 through 3 of Leviticus 10 we read, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, and they knew better because they were priests. Their father was a priest. Each took, his own, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not, this is key, which he had not commanded them. So they offered worship which God did not command. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses and Aaron, and Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Aaron had nothing to say. We see the church government being undermined by women occupying the pastoral office. It's unfortunate. We see the church government being undermined by homosexuals occupying the pastoral office. And we are starting, beloved, we are starting to see more and more often today the church government being undermined by men pretending to be women and women pretending to be men seeking to occupy and in some instances are occupying the pastoral office. Beloved, today we are witnessing the church government being assailed, being attacked, 
the family government is an institution that has been ordained and defined by the Lord God Almighty himself. And so the nuclear family is the family government. Mother, father, children. That's the nuclear family. That's family. God defined, he instituted it, he defined it, he brought it into existence. Marriage is the sacred bond of one biological man and one biological woman who have, who have been united in a lifetime commitment by the Lord God Almighty. Those whom he has joined together, let no man separate. Any other, any other union that we're speaking, any other union that is happening outside of God's defined definition of marriage, as Christians, we ought not to be partaking in that ceremony. Our attendance should not, we should not be attending. We should not be giving our blessings. We should not share the, we, yeah, we, we should share, the, we, we should not share the gospel with them, share our disapproval of what's happening, and then attend. We shouldn't do that. We share that, remember, the church is the, is what? The buttress and foundation of the truth. We are to be truth tellers. And so we tell the truth, we share the truth, we share the gospel. This is why I can't attend. This is why I, I, I can't approve. Because God disapproves of it. The civil government is an institution that has been ordained by God. Why? So that order and society can be maintained by protecting those who do good and punishing those who do evil. Think about this for a moment. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaks about idolatry and he speaks about how God is handing men and women over to homosexuality. Men with men, women with women. Right? God's wrath. Paul speaks about that. Idolatry and homosexuality. He speaks about that. That is God's manifested wrath upon those who reject him. Think about this for a moment. We are called to know what season we are living in, right? We are called to know what time it is. Those very things, idolatry, worship of self, homosexuality, those very things are now law in our country. Their law. 
know what time we are in. Again, as I stated, the only reason that God's people, you and I, the body of Christ, will ever find itself, herself, ourselves, at odds with the government is by walking faithfully with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Know what time it is. We are called to, by God to submit ourselves to the civil government that we have and to financially support it by paying taxes. The church government is an institution ordained and defined by God. Is ordained and defined by God. The church government is made up of men whom God has called, qualified, and equipped for the very important work of shepherding the church, gathering the sheep, warding off and driving away the savage wolves. And so we end where we started. Three institutions. God ordained the church government, the family government, and the civil government. These three alone have been given to us by God himself. These three alone, many today are seeking to destroy. And these three, God's people, you and I, the body of Christ, need to fervently defend. We need to fervently defend them. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the, your wonderful gift of your Son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, help us to always be reminded, help us to be mindful of the day and age in which we are living. Help us to be mindful of the challenges that we face. And help us to be faithful. Help us to be found faithfully walking in obedience with you with our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Obeying you and leaving the results to you. Trusting in your goodness, 
and your sovereignty. Trusting in the promise of Romans 8.28 that you work all things together for our good and your glory. In your holy name we pray, amen.